I want to tell you about a podcast you should check out. It's called Understood Explains. This season of the show is hosted by teacher and special education expert Juliana Urtube, and it's all about how to navigate individual education plans, also known as IEPs. The latest season of Understood Explains covers topics like how to tell if your child needs an IEP and it busts common myths about special education. As a parent myself of a child who's had an IEP since kindergarten and he's now a 10th grader, I know how confusing, overwhelming, frustrating, sometimes daunting the whole process can be. I checked out an episode of Understood Explains called The Difference Between IEPs and 504 Plans. And what I love about it is how easily Juliana explains everything. She answers common questions that probably every parent or caregiver has. She dispels myths and is concise and to the point. To listen to Understood Explains, search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's Understood Explains. And there's a direct link in the show notes if you need it. I knew something in me would always be heartbroken if I didn't try to fill life with my own beauty. And I just had a knowing that, you know what, that's not going to go away ever. I could continue to be a lawyer. And when I'm 40, I think I'll do a good job. I think I will wake up and I'll have like a corner office and I'll be a partner or I could be a judge. And I could also wake up when I'm 40 as an artist. And at that point, will I be wondering, oh God, I gave up the corner office. Should I have done that? Oh God, maybe I should have been a judge. I just thought, no, I don't think, I don't think that would be a regret. This is your Kick-Ass Live podcast, episode number 348 with guest Leah Campbell Batterger. This is the Your Kick-Ass Life podcast with Andrea Owen, a no BS guide to self-help and badassery. Because ladies, let's face it, life's too short for it to not kick ass. And here's your host, the girl who serves it up straight with a side of crazy, Andrea Owen. Hey there, ass figures. Welcome to another episode of the podcast. I am so glad that you are here. I have an interview for you today that was pre-COVID. So, I mean, it's like we were living in some other world. <laughs> No worries, just life was pretty great. And nonetheless, uh, Leah has been a friend of mine for a long time. She is an artist and I have bought some of her artwork. I had to have her on the show. She is just an amazing human being. Before I tell you a little bit about her, we have a couple of openings left for private coaching. If any of you are feeling like you need some extra support right now, you can either apply to work with me. I have one spot open. I have pulled back a lot on my client list as I am finishing up this book that I'm writing for you. And Liz, who is my associate coach over here at Your Kick-Ass Life, she has a couple of openings. So head on over to yourkickasslife.com slash coaching and you can read about it. Fill out an application, even if you're not sure where you might land, and the team can help you figure that out and get you on a phone call and we will see how we can support you. All right, let me tell you a little bit about today's guest. Leah Campbell Battercher is a former attorney turned artist and master life coach for world-class performers and leaders in the arts, business, and movements in positive change for the social good. 
She is also the host of The Art School podcast and founder of The Art School, which trains people from all walks of life, not only to create whatever they want in life, but to become the next greatest version of themselves in the process. Her genius as a coach is helping her clients unleash theirs. Leah is also a mother of three, raising a family with her husband on a 40-acre farm in Michigan. So without further ado, here is Leah. Leah, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here. I am so happy that you're here too. And I was mentioning in the introduction that you and I have spent 2019 together in a small group mastermind where we got to know each other really well. And we've spent the better part of half an hour talking. I'm like, we should probably record, but it's it's such a treat to have you on. And and I was thinking about guests to have on in 2020. And I was like, I know I have to have Leah on to come in. Talk to my people. So thank you. Thank you. Oh, yeah. Again, thank you for having me. One of the first things I thought of to ask you is about your story, you know, because in your bio, you talk about you went to law school and we're going that route. And it's interesting. I've had several clients who are attorneys. So I don't know what it is about being an attorney, especially for women. Right. <laughs> that might kind of wake something up in, in you. But I, let's start there. I have so many questions, but what happened to make you leave your law career and switch careers like pretty dramatically, if I do say so? Well, I think, you know, when I decided to go to law school, I was coming from having a finance degree in international okay. business. And the, and the reason I went that route, um, you know, I had always had creative inclinations and I think I felt more naturally hardwired that way. And I also grew up in rural, rural Northern Iowa on a farm, on a working farm. And so it's like very pragmatic and um, mm-hmm. while my grandmother had become an art teacher in her second act in life after my grandfather passed away, she had been a farm wife and she was very like, she, she played a big role in my life and encouraging, you know, my creative inclinations and just the way I looked at the world. And also like, she was what I knew you could do with, with art. And I thought, well, I, I don't want to be an art teacher. And, mm-hmm. and everybody encouraged my creative interests and said, but you can do that as a hobby on the weekend. So make sure you can take care of yourself and afford to have art as a hobby. And I think I was pretty like, was a first child, pretty responsible and kind of an overachiever anyway. So that, well, I'll I'll do that. I'll like, I'll go this route and make my way in the world. And I'll also like work in creativity on the side. And I think through undergrad, I could manage that because it wasn't that taxing. Like I could still Mm -hmm. do great at school and succeed. And I could take like a creative writing class or I could like sketch, you know, on the side. And, but then I went to law school and as like one of my law school mentors, I clerked for a federal judge one semester told me he had this like cross stitched thing (laughs) that was hung on the wall in my office that said the law is a jealous mistress. Oh my gosh. And like that, that semester was so crucial for me because until that semester, I just in law school felt like, man, I don't belong here. (laughs) Oh, you had it. You had, so you had that sinking feeling in your gut. Yes. I was like, I I feel like I'm like playing with playing a foreign game, like with the, my strong hand tied behind my back, just like a fish out of water. But then I clerked for this judge and I was like, well, I could actually see myself doing this. 
He and his clerks were amazing. I actually really enjoyed it. I did very well. That's like, wait, that's like being in a relationship with someone where your gut is telling you like, this isn't great. And then you're like, but his family is so nice. He has a great job. Yes. Yeah. And he doesn't. Yeah. 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 Okay. So go ahead. Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) And, and, you know, and he was like, well, you, you could be a judge someday if you wanted to. And Ooh, that's appealing. Yeah. And I thought, well, and it's like, and I loved that they, it was like a very heart centered approach to the work too. And mm-hmm. so that was something that kind of had been missing for me and the rest of the legal education. I thought it was going to be this, I was naive too and idealistic. And I thought, you know, looking back on it, like law school was going to be like an ashram. <laughs> I would like go there, okay. this institution of higher learning, higher learning. And there'd be all these like very smart enlightened individuals and we'd be studying like, you know, what it means to be a good human being and create a better society. So a lot of philosophical conversations and, uh, yeah. And with the exception of like constitutional law and then maybe a a couple of ethics seminars, it's really not, it's really like a, like a lot of it is like vocational. Um, Mm -hmm. and also I just learned that higher education does not mean enlightened. (laughs) Yeah. very two different things. Um, so after that semester with the judge, though, I still thought, you know what, this like these creative dreams are not going away. Like something in me still wants to be an artist. I had a whole nother year of law school left and I didn't want to quit. And um, so I finished everything out. And at the end, it was like the day after graduation. And I felt like, well, here I am. I have a very real JD and I feel like a fake lawyer. Mm. And something in me just is saying you are an artist, but I have no art to show for it aside from some random sketchbooks. So I'm going to ask you something. So uh, during this time, did you, because I know a lot of us grow up with the whole, and I hate this, but the notion of starving artist. Like, did you think that this was something you wanted to do for a living and that you could do for a living? Like what was swimming around in your head around that? I don't think I ever until that point considered that I could do it for a living. Okay. I just didn't have exposure to, you know, people doing it for a living. And this was also like pre-internet too. Yeah. Mm So, um, like the people that were doing it for a living to me seemed like different species and far off lands, even though I had been to those places, like been to, you know, national and international art museums. And I for sure, like all my life had consumed voraciously any sort of book about creative genius people. Like, but still, when you're going to art museums, it's not like you read, you know, it's not like you're like, well, that seems like you're, you know, the, the, girl next door. No, no, (laughs) no, not at all. And I like loved, you know, beautiful things. And then two was like, well, that's doesn't qualify you. Right. And, Mm -hmm. um, and, and two, you know, when I had kind of like looked into talk to people who were like art professors or, um, you know, I was really interested in writing too. And I was at the university of Iowa, which has like the international writers workshop kind of legendary And so I would talk to some people who were making a living as artists and writers. And, um, and for a while that kind of 
sent like shut that path down for me because I would share like why I thought I was interested in it. And they would look at me like, no, that's not what an artist does, or that's not how a writer approaches it. Which later I learned, um, I should not have let shut me down because there are many different kinds of artists and Mm -hmm. writers, and there are many approaches to it. There are many inroads to it. And I was talking to people who were amazing at it, but also were coming from, um, in more of a cerebral approach yeah. or they'd always grown up with it. And it was like very kind of an intellectual, like an intelligentsia mm-hmm. <laughs> kind of approach to it. And um, I had not yet arrived at the point where I was willing to like trust my own intuition and my instincts. I was still looking at everyone else in the world as the authority. And okay. Yeah. I kind of would abdicate you know, the, the intuition that would rise in me, that it would feel like a very real thing. And then I would try to find someone to talk to who was an authority. And the moment they said something that didn't vibe with my intuition, I discounted my intuition mm-hmm. and was like, well, they're the adult. <laughs> they're the authority. Right. They must be right. I must have been wrong about that. I think we do this all the time. Just yes. the the seeking counsel and... I know that a couple of years ago, I declared to some of my my best friends, a couple of them, I said, I am, my intention is that I am going to stop seeking out y'all's opinion. And like, these were like my very best friends. It wasn't like I was going to, you know, way higher up experts. These were my friends and colleagues. And so they started calling me out on it. Like mm-hmm. when I would come to them and they would, so I, I'll, I say that because gosh, we do it all the time. I think especially as women just bypass our, not even bypass our, just second guess our yes. intuition. Yes. Yes. And, um, and I, because don't you have something too in your podcast where you do like, you know, we're unqualified, but we talk about like, <laughs> conversations about shit that yeah. matters with unqualified people. Exactly. Mm-hmm. That, because I, but I, and, and I love that because I think it speaks to what we're talking about, about kind of abdicating your own knowing or trusting your own deepest knowing too, because, and women in particular, like we're conditioned to think that um, someone has to give us, anoint us with a degree or some status of like, you're an expert or you're an authority until we're like willing to use our voice. And for that letter that Harry Potter got that says you're invited to Hogwarts. Right. (laughs) Right. Yes. Ugh. Okay. So you, so you got your, you started at, you were, uh, you were lawyering. I was lawyering. And then you got married. Did you, did you have babies and you were still lawyering? Um, no, the babies came after I made the decision to leave. To leave. Okay. Lawyering. Yeah. And it was really, you know, I think like my, the fork in the road, I don't think anyone else could have seen it at that time, but it was kind of like an internal fork in the road. And it was like the day after law school, because even though I did work, continue to work as a lawyer after that, like that day after law school, I'm like, well, like, again, here I am. I'm a real lawyer. Feel like fake, <laughs> and mm-hmm. um, no, I can do it. And yet, like this, this, like longing to be creative. Like I felt like I had paintings living inside of me. Like I felt it, like physically. Yeah. And that was the thing that then when I would talk to other people that were artists, and I would like tell them that, <laughs> like the way they looked at me, I was like, oh god, I wish I had not just shared that. 
Oh, I and see, I get it. Like as a writer, I, I didn't have that same experience, but I under I completely understand how an artist would have that experience. Yes. And I and I one of the reasons I wanted you to tell this story is because I know that there's people out there listening who have, you know, maybe it's not law that they went into, but they either followed a career path that just quote unquote made sense or they got a certification to be in HR or in finance or something. And then maybe it's, you know, the day they get their certificate or maybe they're even excited about it for a little while, but then their kind of intuition sounded a little bit different. Maybe it was a little quieter than yours was. It's, it's, I have talked to people, so many people where this has happened, where they long to do something else. And maybe it's not that they want to completely scrap their career and go in this other direction in terms of a new career, but it's, that's what I really wanted to highlight because I think there's so many people listening who have some kind of longing inside of them. Maybe it's, you know, working at a nonprofit or helping some kind of charity or writing. I know there's a lot of writers listening and a lot of artists listening. So I guess my next question is, how did you sort of, was it a moment or was it a slow burn into really just saying yes to this voice? You know, it was that like that day after law school, I said yes. And then like the unfolding, I think was more of a slow burn. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And I've come to, and this, and that's why, you know, but it doesn't, have to be that way for everyone. And I also, you know, want to make sure to say, I don't, it is also not for everyone to like leave their career that sometimes I find like I I've had clients that are lawyers too, who are like, I want to bag this whole thing. I've had clients who are surgeons who are like, I want to bag this whole thing that I've created. And I just like Mm -hmm. want to, you know, write the book or start a charity in Africa. Mm -hmm. And you know, and I think it's like that urgency, like that almost desperation. I'm like, that's a different energy and you want to slow your roll a little bit yeah. and, you know, n- not jump, not jump at that point. If you feel like, well, what do you think? Let me ask you this. What do you think that those people are truly hungry for? To listen to themselves. And, mm-hmm. and a lot of times I, there is something about being creative that's calling mm-hmm. to them. And I do think that creativity is this you know, I have like a, I do have a spiritual approach to it that I, I do think creativity wants to happen through us and that those treating those longings, those whispers as sacred is the first matter of business. And, yeah. and I think that is what that day after law school was for me is like, we were seeing the way we talk ourselves out of our knowings or our desires. I just made a decision that day that I wasn't going to do that anymore. Um, mm-hmm. And so I think for those clients, I'm like, let's let's first establish this practice of you're going to not no longer dismiss that which occurs to you, and you're going to take everything that occurs to you. You're not going to discount it anymore, but you're going to honor it and honor it mm-hmm. as sacred. And we're going to slow things down a bit and listen to you know how it's speaking to you, what it is that you really want. Um, because I also think part of creativity is knowing that you can have, like, you can create the life in a way, in a matter that suits you um, on your terms. And so like a lot of doctors feel very disempowered because they are in a system where it looks like success has to be created this way. And this way Mm -hmm. of creating success involves so much 
Um, like I had this client this last year, it just, this just made me cry because she said, I feel like I've had to erase myself the last nine years mm. in order to, and she was incredibly successful and like had, had created an amazing career, was really good at what she did enjoy, like really loved a lot of the work, except for this part where she felt like, yeah, the part where she felt like she had to erase herself yeah, to do it. Oof. And that's rough. Yes. And so I think it's like coming back to a place where establishing yourself as the creative authority in your life is like, no, I am the one that defines my life and Mm -hmm. I get to define it on my terms. There's definitely been times in my life where my paycheck ran out before I got paid again, and I wish I could have accessed my next paycheck a few days before I was due to get it. Well, what if I told you that can happen with Earnin? Earnin is an app that gives you access to your pay as you work up to $100 per day or up to $750 per pay period. Just download the Earnin app and verify your paycheck. Then access up to $100 a day as you work and leave an optional tip. Any money you access plus tips are automatically repaid from your next paycheck. You can use Earnin for anything you need to, therapy visits, rent, or even extra self-help books. Make Earnin a part of your financial routine and join Earnin's over three and a half million customers who say things like, when I think about Earnin, I think about financial stability and security. It gives me a lot of peace of mind. Download Earnin today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earnin app, type in noise under podcast when you sign up. It really helps the show. Noise under podcast. Subject to your available earnings, location, daily max, and pay period max. See earnin.com slash TOS for details. Earnin is a financial technology company, not a bank. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank and Trust, member FDIC. Lynn, this time of year, parenting can be such a fluster clucks. You've come to the right place. I'm Lynn Lyons, and I've been treating anxious families for over 30 years. I'm Lynn's sister-in-law and co-host Robin Hudson. Join us for Fluster Clucks, a podcast for parents who worry. Wait, that's everybody. Yeah, these last few years have felt like one long anxiety attack for so many. Why do you think parents are always surprised that a podcast about anxiety relates to them, even if no one in their house has an anxiety disorder? Well, worry is human. Everyone does it. And anxiety shows up when we face uncertainty. All the parenting tips you've taught me have been essential. I love to break it down into skills we need to manage worry in our families. We've covered so many topics, depression, burnout, meltdowns, perfectionism. Don't forget scary mothers-in-law. Right, but of course that's not my mother-in-law. Because that's my mother. And a listener. As a psychotherapist, I like to teach parents and kids how to respond to everyday moments in healthy ways. Managing anxiety really can be taught. It really can. And I'll even tell you what to say. We talk about serious stuff, but without being too serious. Anxiety wants everything serious. Anxiety doesn't stand a chance when we're laughing, even about the tough stuff. I love that you slow down with people because what I hear a lot of times is people will come to me and they'll say, I've built this career and it's successful, you know, whatever that might look like. And I want to do this other thing. 
again, maybe not for a full-time career. And they're so caught up in the logistics of it. And they're so caught up in what are other people going to think? And I always say like, okay, well, you don't need to quit like on Friday. Like, let's just back way up. And I love that you do that. Like, let's just talk about your intuition. Let's just have you feel into that and maybe do some exercises around. I love that you say that, that that voice is sacred because I think that the real work starts with that, with that listening to your intuition and not discounting it, not looking for, for outside counsel. And I also want to say like, for the record, this is something that I still have to work on. I don't know about you, Leah, but like I still, and, and I, I bring up the part where we're afraid of what other people are going to think because my intuition still tells me, you know, you were meant to be this and, and my quote unquote, this is sort of, um, Emily calls me the star. Emily's on my team and, and, and just out there and charismatic and enthusiastic. And I still have the voice. I posted this on my Facebook page, uh, I think last week or something when I was about 10 years old and I was on, there's a, I'll, I'll circle back stay with me. Yeah. I was, I was riding bikes with my friend in our, on our street. And she was talking about some other girl that was like in our class or that lived on our street. I can't remember. And she said, she thinks she's so hot. Mm. And I was like, mm. and it was the first time I had ever heard something like that. Yeah. And I immediately remember thinking like, Oh, we don't want to do that. Like, oh my God. if yeah. we, if we are, and I don't even remember the girl that she was talking about. I have no idea, but it was the first time I had ever heard another girl talking about someone else badly for standing out, yeah. and that has stayed with me. And it's been like thirty plus years. And so, yeah, again, and now my own intuition is like yeah, you are fucking hot and you need to tell everyone so that you can help other women know that they're hot too. Right. (laughs) So this goes against like my body. And I I use that as an example because I think so many of us are in some kind of struggle like that where our, what our intuition tells us is scary. And it also, sometimes it goes against like survival. I know that sounds dramatic, but Yeah. yeah, like being a different part of the group. Absolutely. Because, you know, I, for like, it was years that, um, it took me to find my groove as an artist. And part of it was, I was doing so much of this on my own. Um, and I was like swimming upstream against the current of society and everyone else's expectations for me, because Mm -hmm. to that point, I'd been really good at, um, doing well, in other people's eyes. You mean like before when yeah. you were going the, the quote unquote, you know, yes. successful typical route. Yes. When I first started doing art again, like I felt like I had like these paintings and so I could just feel what they were meant to be. And, and I also even through a law school, like would make notes in the margins, like as I was doing my outlining in my little cubicle of like, I wanted to make art that turned not only heads, but turned souls. Mm. And And I also already had this kind of scary inclination that I wasn't going to be like a realist kind of artist and um, that it was going to be something different. And, and so anyway, like that whole swimming upstream against people's expectations, because they're like, well, you have this degree, like you've got this education 
It doesn't make any sense. Make any sense. <laughs> and not only are they like perplexed, but they were disappointed in me. Oh. And like, and thought I was being. Which is many times worse. Oh, yes. Especially when you're a people pleaser. <laughs> yes. And, and we're like, so like almost kind of some of them like borderline disgusted. <laughs> oh no. And, and I could tell too, and it was such an important growing period for me though, because it was really like, I had to dig deep to, um, believe in myself before there was any reason for it. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, can you say more about that? Yeah. Say more. I have on the wall of my studio, like taped up, I need to get it framed. But the very first painting I did after law school, I sent up, I set up like a studio, a makeshift studio in the garage. My husband and I had both been in grad school. And so in the garage below our little townhouse condo, grad school house, I set up a makeshift studio in our garage. So I'd have to take it down anytime we actually wanted to park the car in there. And mm-hmm. um, in the very first painting I did, like I tore out this watercolor from the, like a Ballard Designs kind of catalog. And it was of poppies, which had some significance for me, for my grandmother. And I'm like, I just have to start somewhere. So I did this big watercolor of poppies and I loved it. It felt significant to me. And I also knew it kind of looked like kindergarten art. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Like, and, but like something in my like soul just was like, this is where you're meant to be. This is where you're meant to be. And my highly educated you know, inner critic brain was like, are you fucking kidding me? Uh, Oh yeah. Because I was wondering if you were going to say that (laughs) or if you just were totally like, no, this is, this kindergarten art is the fucking best. No, I was not in that place. (laughs) You were waffling back and forth. I was waffling back and forth. And I majorly like, and so for like the first two months, I was kind of like writing this high of, I am doing this. But that Mm -hmm. inner critic voice was also so nasty. So, so nasty. And I realized like two months in, I'm like, oh, not only do I have to make a decision about becoming an artist, because I was like going to do it on the side there, right? Like while I was working as a lawyer, mm-hmm. but like, if I'm really going to do this, it either has to be like, also first and foremost about my growth as a person, like my spiritual evolution. Because So you had that, you had that knowledge. Because I knew. Consciously. Mm-hmm. Yes. I'm like, because he, that that inner critic. I'm like, that's part of what made me so miserable in law school. That was my next question is how did you keep going? Like after you did the painting of the poppies and the inner critic was all over your ass, like how did you keep going? Cause I think that's where a lot of people quit. Yeah. I wanted to quit. Like, and I, and I have like so much compassion and then also that's kind of why I'm on fire in this area for coaching around perfectionism and the inner critic, because it really felt debilitating. Like it really felt like I struggled sometimes to like go stand in front of a blank piece of paper and keep going because just like the weight and the cruelty of that voice, like it was not fun to be in my Mm -hmm. head. And I think that's when I realized too, like, I don't, I, I just knew those desires to create art, the, that like love of beauty. It wasn't enough for me just to appreciate the beauty other people made and beauty in the world, which I did and I do. I knew something in me would always be heartbroken if I didn't try to fill life with my own beauty. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and I just had a knowing that, you know what? That's not going to go away ever. 
And so I could continue to be a lawyer. And when I'm 40, I think I'll do a good job. I think I will wake up and I'll have like a corner office and I'll be a partner or I could be a judge. And I'm like, and I will still wonder at that point, I know like what I could have done as an artist and had I pursued this creative route. And I thought, and I could also wake up when I'm 40 as an artist. And at that point, will I be wondering, oh God, I gave up the corner office. Should I have done that? Oh God, maybe I should have been a judge. I just thought, no, I don't think, I don't think that would be a regret. So is that when, is that when you found coaching in terms of doing your own work? Like, did you hire a coach or did you sign up for life coach school or how, what did that look like? First, like I came across Martha Beck in law school. And good old Martha Beck. I just love her. If those of you that don't know her, she wasn't she Oprah's coach. Yes. Okay. That's sort of, she, she is sort of the woman who brought, I hate to say it. Like, I hope I'm not wrong, but like brought coaching mainstream. Yeah. Her and Tony Robbins, I feel like pioneers. Yes, for sure. Pioneers. And I was like looking for help and realizing I had a hard time asking for help in law school. Cause I, I like, you know, went to there was like student counselors, graduate school counselors. Like I tried that. I tried going to the Dean of Students um, when I was in law school to say, you know, I don't know if I'm in the right place or don't think I'm thriving here. And her advice was, well, law school is tough for me too. So what here, try what I would do. What I used to do was when I got home from the library, I'd pop a bowl of popcorn, crack a beer and watch mash reruns. <laughs> Oh my God. I thought you, she was going to say like, take a bath and get a mani-pedi, which is basically like the same thing. (laughs) Right. And I think like my mouth was just open because again, I was, that that was like one of like many realizations where I'm like, higher education does not mean enlightenment. (laughs) Basically numb out because your soul is dying. And she's telling me (laughs) to have a beer and watch MASH after the library. (laughs) Oh my God. And so I did like one of those polite nods and was like, mm-hmm. oh yeah, okay. I feel better. Okay. Just so I yeah. could get out of the office. But I walked away being like this, these are the people that are in charge of like human souls on the yeah. verge of like Not flying off answer. into mm-hmm. the world. And, you know, come back to your question a lot, like why so many lawyers? I think because like a lot of us are also in law school because we want to do something in the world. Yeah. And like, Law does give you a language and some skills to be able to affect change. But I think so. I think that's why so many of us are drawn there and then are like, and that was a very incomplete <laughs> education. Mm-hmm. But part mm-hmm. of it. I can see why that would be attractive because you want to make the world a better place. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, but not long after this encounter with this, the dean of students, um, I like happened to be flipping through an Oprah magazine and saw Martha Beck's article. And I read it and I was like, this is the kind, this is like what I was looking for mm-hmm. kind of wisdom, you know, and she's that combo of Harvard educated, she's super smart. Oh yeah. Super Does she have like dual PhD or master's or something? I've read a few of her books. Yes. Like three degrees from Harvard. And, yeah. and then also, you know, kind of burned that whole house down mm-hmm. <laughs> and went this other route. And, um, so that then I started to consume everything she read. I was also a triathlete at the time and a pretty competitive athlete. And I l- loved anything to do with sports psychology. Like I could not get enough of it. And I think it was because it was the first place I had ever read that your brain is plastic. Mm-hmm, the first mm-hmm. time I ever encountered the word neuroplasticity. 
Yeah. yeah not, not literally plastic. Right. <laughs> Plasticity. Right. I got you were saying, I just want to make sure right. we're not. That would be bad news. <laughs> right. You can get too close to a fire. Uh. Yeah. No, neuroplasticity. And because I got like, it was pretty depressed in law school. And I was like, gosh, maybe this is just me. Maybe this is just like the way my personality is. And, um, and then when I read about neuroplasticity, because before that, everybody said, you're pretty much hardwired by the time you're 23. And then I was like, mm-hmm. oh, fuck. <laughs> yeah, I'm screwed. Because that's not fun to be in my head. And, um, and then I had like so much hope when I read that line about actually, no, we're beginning to think there's so much more possibility to changing our brains. Mm-hmm. And after law school too, I enrolled in a, I did an eight week mindfulness-based stress reduction training. It was like John Kabat-Zinn's program. There was a satellite at the University of Iowa hospitals and clinics. That was life-changing. And also, you know, it seemed so radical for me at the time to do that process. And now mm-hmm. it's like, I, I've done many other things, but it was for sure like a portal. And I love that you use I, that you use that word because I was just thinking the same thing like two seconds before you said it, and I thought to myself, it sounds like that was the thing that radicalized her in terms of under like it's so interesting to me when people either find a personal development or like the first for me this is kind of embarrassing but for me it was the movie the secret because it had mm. just came out like i knew the i know it was a book before that but it, i think it was 07 early 07 maybe the maybe the movie came out in 06 but my life had fallen apart and that was the first mm. thing where i was like oh you mean i can take responsibility for my happiness yes at least a large portion of it, yeah. sign me up. And I, I love hearing about those moments for people because it just, like you said, it's the portal and it's just really exciting because it, it's sort of like we're over here with open arms and confetti saying, welcome to the rest of your life. Yes, You have so much freedom over here because for a large part of it, you are in charge. Absolutely. Absolutely. I just got the chills when you said that too. Um, and, and you know, I also, I don't know if you had this feeling with the secret, but with when I first encountered Martha's work and then the, the, the interesting work that had come across in sports psychology and then the mindfulness, all of those things that seemed so radical to me, I also had this feeling of recognition. Like, this is what I was looking for before I knew I was looking for it. Mm-hmm. Did you feel that at all with The Secret or was it just like, like this is brand new? Yes, I did. And I think it was because it felt like almost like it felt like home, like, oh, this is what I have been seeking. It was the same with feminism. Like, and that was radical for me too. I was like, what? But it was, this is the thing that I've been looking for and did not know that I was looking for it at all. And yeah, that's exactly what you said. And for the record, I do think that the secret, like, I think the law of attraction is a little bit like, "Mm, really? I think manifestation is real. I think anyway, different conversation for a different time, but But okay, so you signed up for this course. Yeah. There are those, the gateway things, right? Mm -hmm. Like there are those things, like it gets you in the door. Um, Yeah. And what I think too, like those experiences kind of highlighted, they reinforced um, my knowing that I needed to trust myself. Yeah. Because I realized that like, despite my like overachieving mind that had tried to take me down all these other roads, something in me was still seeking and still got me to the right places at the right time and the things that I needed. And so then I started to think, well, what if I just tried lining up with that more and more? 
Mm-hmm. And instead of fighting those internal things and trying to like reshape myself so that I can fit into the world and in a way that's acceptable to everybody else. <laughs> what if I just like really leaned in more to like trusting that and what would happen? So how did you do that? Cause self-trust has been a theme for me over the last few years too. So I'm curious how you, what did it actually look like for you to lean into that? Um, I think, you know, one place a practice is with art. Uh, because, and I fought it for a while, even with art, like I, I first really tried to make myself into like a realist painter because that's the kind of art where anybody will look at it and be like, wow, that looks like a photograph. Okay. You must Mm -hmm. be good. Mm -hmm. And that I would do that. It was just, I'm like, this is not it. This feels so unsatisfying. Like I can do this because I can like make myself do anything. Um, but it's not it. And so when I felt like I really hit my stride with my art was like when I let go and just let it rip and followed my intuition, like in the moment, moment by moment, it was like less thinking, just like this color, this shape, this size. Mm -hmm. And then what happened, I had that same feeling you described of like, this is home. This is, this is me. And then the next moment was like that critical mind, internal inner critic came out and like wanted to slash and burn it before anybody could see it. Mm-hmm. because interesting. I'm like, I did not want to be an intuitive person because like my logical mind was like, everyone is going to think you're ridiculous and that you've gone off the deep end. And in my mind too, like an intuitive artist, <clears throat> I had like some very mean judgments in my mind, opinions that it'd be making paintings that were like, look like swirly lima beans or something. Mm-hmm. Sounds good to me. <laughs> <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> And when I looked at the, like the first painting I did that, like, it felt like I, I had followed, like trusting myself and brass tacks moment to moment meant it felt like just not overthinking. It, yeah. it felt like. Hello, you sentient ball of stardust. My name is Casey Davis. I'm a therapist and I'm an author of the book, How to Keep House While Drowning where I talk about ways to make it a little bit easier to take care of yourself when you're overwhelmed, stressed, have mental health issues, physical health issues, or maybe you're just in a hard season of life. Maybe you're looking for a place that you can come and listen to some practical advice. This is a podcast for all of the self-help rejects. We're going to talk about skills for survival and self-kindness. And I'm going to leave the pop psychology at the door. I promise not to tell you to meditate or to journal. We're just going to give you some really insightful conversations with hopefully some practical advice. So I don't believe you need to pick yourself up by the bootstraps. I don't want you to just try harder. And I don't believe that laziness exists. So join me over on Struggle Care, where we can find compassionate solutions that help us function a little bit better. If you like this show, there's a decent chance you'll also enjoy the Shameless Mom Academy. Hi, I'm Sarah Dean, the founder and host of the Shameless Mom Academy. The Shameless Mom Academy is a podcast for moms that centers moms more than it centers your kids. I'm not going to teach you how to make baby food or how to make your three-year-old or 13-year-old stop having tantrums. Instead, I'm going to bring you back to yourself. For the last 20 years, I've been helping moms through growth and transformation. Inside the Shameless Mom Academy, I help you identify who you are and who you are becoming. Look, motherhood is hard. It brought me to my knees many times and sometimes still does. Returning to who I am and who I am becoming allows me to decide how to show up in all those sticky motherhood moments, but also in all my other relationships and in all the ways I show up in my various communities. 
So come check out the Shameless Mom Academy wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm willing to bet you'll leave feeling a little inspired and maybe even completely fired up. And you'll probably laugh a few times because I promise we never take ourselves too seriously over here. With 700 episodes to choose from, you're likely going to find something that sparks and speaks to you inside the Shameless Mom Academy. And here is like another thing that was a huge insight to me. And I think, you know, maybe your listeners um, can recognize this in their own lives. And it's like when something felt too easy, it felt like it was natural. Mm-hmm. And then I would notice my brain being like, well, then this is not going to be any good or of any value. It's not worth anything not worth if it anything. wasn't. Like if your, if your body and heart weren't bleeding. Right, right. And, and I would like see like my like compulsion to complicate mm-hmm. and to like <laughs> fabricate struggle and suffering. Whereas if I was just in a place of trusting myself, there wasn't that sort of self-inflicted violence on the back mm-hmm. end. Um, and so it was like a practice. And I felt too, that's like why painting was a spiritual practice because there's so many decisions and I realized decision-making is only <laughs> agonizing if you are second-guessing and self-doubting yourself every step of the way. Oh, 100%. I feel that way with writing. Yeah. So I, I started to do, and this is before I was coaching anybody, I would think about, I'd go back to my original dream of being an artist and like why, how that felt and like what, it, what I thought it would feel like to be this artist I felt I could be. And I realized in that vision, yes, I could see paintings and things like that. But what was so magnetic and powerful and compelling to me about that was what it was like to be inside her mind and her heart and her body. Because it was blissfully quiet of any of that kind of self-inflicted violence, second guessing, shame, doubt. Mm-hmm. She was in a place where she was just trusting. Like she was, I'm like, oh, we're doing same. Like she has paintbrushes and paint and canvas. So do I. She's making marks. So am I. What's different is like she'll make, you know, paints for a whole week. Maybe nothing is done, but she's not being like, oh my God, I'm never going to make this work. This is so terrible. I should never have left law. Mm-hmm. So I had a, like a knowing that that's really was as important part of the dream as the art was me being in that place where I had um, like undone like the conditioning of um, being so hard on myself and thinking that that was the way to achieve anything worthwhile in the world. I had like done the inner work to undo that, and I had done the inner work to know like from the ground up what it means to love yourself and that that it's, you know, I think that gets dismissed because it sounds like such an airy fairy idea, but if you've ever actually really done that work where you have been in a place where you didn't love yourself and you had to figure out moment by moment, decision by decision, day by day, how to do it, you know, (laughs) that's, that's work. And it takes, Mm -hmm. it takes like grit and figuring out And, um, but it's absolutely worth it. And I think too, that's like when I tell people to first start by knowing that 
you know, those longings, those dreams are sacred and that your own intuition is sacred. Um, Because I think part of why our dreams are sacred is who they're asking us to become. And I think sacred dreams ask us to become in a way in which we need to grow our capacity for self-love and self-compassion and trust. And I think that's like one of the gifts and the powers of being engaged with a creative process is because you probably know, like I, you could grind out a book, right? Mm-hmm. Probably in my sleep. Yes. <laughs> so there's, like, you know, you're going to finish it, right? Yeah. And so then I think then sort of like the master level challenge is, and can you do that in a way where you can be very kind yourself in the process? And I think too, it, it fits in like for both of us because we want to walk our talk. Mm-hmm. Oh my God. Yeah. Right. Yeah. There's like a few things I feel shittier than doing something for a living where you're giving advice and teaching people and and then you come up against this edge where you're like, am I actually living this in my life? Like the feeling of a hypocrite is just the, sh- the wash of shame around that. So yeah. And it's, I, I love so many things about what you just said, especially the, you know, the creative processes. Part of it is finding out who, and I'm, I'm not quoting you correctly, but like, who are we becoming in the process? Yes. And it's, I, you know, every book I've written has asked something different of me. And and I could even say like every time I've sat down to write, even if it's not for anyone else's consumption except my own. I think experience has taught me that when I sit down to do a big project like writing a book, I have to be very intentional and conscious of how I'm going to show up for myself when I sit my butt in the mm-hmm. seat to write. Because it, it, I, ve- I very much have written chapters from that place of, oh my God, what are people going to think? What is my editor going to think? Am I going to get it on time? What is my word count? Like that outcome looks very different from a place of, okay, I'm just going to write yeah. And whatever happens, happens. That feel like when I say that out loud, that sounds very airy fairy to me. Yeah. Like, who does that? But some of my best writing comes from that. And and the end product of what people have in their hands is that. And it's, and it's what's interesting is some of the sections of the book where I get the most feedback from have been truly from that place where I sit down, something I get like a download and I write about it, and I have that thought of does this really belong? Like, <laughs> and part of, you know, one of the, an example of that is in the last chapter of the book when I'm talking about when my dad died halfway through, and that was a spiritual experience and it shaped a lot of that of my second book. But it, that was completely a place mm-hmm. of um, unattachment. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the word that keeps coming up for me is un- when you're creating art, whether it's writing or painting, whatever the art is for you, cooking, Etc. It's being unattached to the outcome. That for me has been that sums up the uh, most challenging part of the entire creative process. Yes, absolutely. Yes, and it's. Um, I mean, I don't know if you have read Liz Gilbert's Big Magic twice. Yes, <laughs> right. <laughs> Very different experience the second time. Yeah, mm-hmm. and yeah, I, I love that book. And of many things in it, what she says about how the, our work is like it's walking that fine line, that razor's edge of sacred, not sacred. 
I had to listen to that like multiple times because she talks about not having our art be our baby. Right. And I, that sounds like what, how does one do that? Right. And I think that isn't it her that coined the term creative martyrdom? Yes. I am a queen of that. And how she describes it is like, like fainting on the chaise lounge. Just like, it's so hard. Like my fingers are bleeding. Like, uh, I am that way. (laughs) And it's sort of ridiculous, but yeah. Yeah. And so, so why, so why do you, for you, what do you think, like what's going on in your mind that like motivates when you, when you find your brain doing that, like the creative martyrdom? I'm very worried about what other people are going to think, especially because my livelihood depends on this now is that I have, you know, and it, what did they say? Like, you're only as good as your last project. And so with every success that I have, not that there's been a whole long line of them, but it's, it's, you know, is my editor going to like this? Are the, I care more about these listeners and what they think of my work, honestly, than my editors, because I feel like, anyway, that's a different story for a different time in terms of the kind of politics with that. But because I care so much about my people and because I listen so fiercely to what it is that they want, I, I deeply want to make sure that I'm getting it right. Yeah. And if I listen to my intuition, I'm never wrong. Never, ever. Right. <laughs> so when I get caught up in that, maybe that one bad review from Amazon or the one bad podcast review, that's when it all falls apart. It all falls apart. Yeah. Yeah, I think that about what people think. Uh, I, I think that is like that part of our psyche, you know, that is drawn to like creating suffering, like the creative the creative martyrdom business is like taking out insurance an insurance policy of, well, let me just tell you how much I suffered. Let me make sure I feel my suffering deeply. So then, if somebody comes at me with something negative, it's like a, we think it's going to be like a buffer. Hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but look at how hard I work. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Because if we didn't, then they're right that it sucks. Yeah. Yeah. If they mm-hmm. if they come back with like, this is, you know, you could have put more thought into this. You could come back. I did. Yeah, I did. I was crying and it was a street fight and all of those things. Yeah. We'll see how it goes with this book. I mean, I can't promise it's a, it's a one day at a time gig for sure. And some days are better than others. And, uh, what helps for me truly is, is, and I know that this isn't for everybody, but it's a schedule. It's just like get, you know, 500 to a thousand words written today or this week or whatever, and just see what happens. And, and it truly is just sort of like digging for the gems and, and things like that. But I know we went off on like a little bit of a side tangent here and no, but I, I, I could talk to you for hours I, on this. I, I think that like that schedule thing is like helps rein in the drama, right? Because it is, goes back to that line of like walking that line of like caring, not caring. If I care yeah. too much about my work, I'm totally seized up. And I, and I try too hard from a place where I'm worried about myself and my, and other mm-hmm. people's perceptions of me. And I think that's like another gift of being engaged in a creative process though, is giving yourself like the opportunity to practice a way of being where you show up and you give your best on that day and let it go. And I think that to me always feels like the very vulnerable part about creativity is sometimes like my best on my best days, I'm like, oh, like there is the invitation to be ashamed. (laughs) 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's pretty bad. <laughs> and, and, and since I'm doing this for a living, right? Meaning like I'm sharing it with the world and I'm saying, this is my best on this best day. The fact that I'm opening it up for other people to come and be like, seriously, mm-hmm. <laughs> you're, mm-hmm. and you're call yourself an artist and you call yourself a coach for other artists. You make a living doing like that. But that too, is that, um, helps grow courage on the regular and yeah and I you know also believe too in you know like Brene Brown's work where she talks about you have to be discerning about who you're listening to because if they're not in the arena 100% right yeah a hundred percent. And I also am a true believer, you know, speaking to Brene, like I'm a true believer of, of resilience and that we have had bad reviews or, or you know, it, and it's, and I didn't die. Right. It sucked. But again, it's about being discerning and it's about it. Also, there's so many perspectives to look at it. And this is why we have great people in our lives that help show us those perspectives. But I think that's what stops a lot of people is that they think about the worst case scenario and it's so scary and make-believe often because it hasn't happened yet that they don't even walk in. That's what breaks my heart, especially when it comes to art and doing something creative. Yeah. Yes. And, and I, because, you know, the risk, the risk analysis for a lot of people is like, what am I giving up? What am I going to have to sacrifice? What might I be risking? Mm-hmm. And what I like to offer people is that's like an incomplete picture. What you also, if you are doing an objective risk analysis, what you also must consider is like what you're giving up by not going for it. Yeah. Yeah. Sit with that for a minute, everybody. Yeah. And including, <laughs> including like what's to gain when you find out you're a person that can go through adversity and can get bad reviews and who is like, I'm still doing this. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. like the strength that comes with that, with I'm doing this no matter what. So then if I know I'm doing this no matter what, then the golden question remains, how, then how am I going to be with myself through this process? Who do I get to make myself into through this process? And to me, that is, that's where the gold is. Mm-hmm. Oh, I love that. I want to end on that note around finding the gold because it's, there's so, and there's so many huge takeaways in this. And I, I know that there's people listening who are nodding and whether they want to completely leave their careers and go to be an artist or just dip their toe in a little bit and tell people where, and I, I just wanted to also say, like, I can vouch for Leah hundred percent. I have bought coaching for my husband from Leah and cause he is an artist as well. And I think you're a phenomenal coach. Thank you Thank so much you. for coming on. Where do, where are we sending? We have your websites are in the show notes because you have a website that is your art, leahcbart, and then leahcb.com is your website for people who are wanting to look more into this work and get coaching from you, et cetera, et cetera. So is that the best place for people to find you? Those are great. Um, My podcast too, if people want to, and it's called the art school and it's for um, all creative humans, which means all humans. So it's essentially about like, you know, using taking back all of your creative power to create the life of your dreams on your terms. And I like to, you know, combine, I'm very pragmatic with like define your results and go for those results. Absolutely. And then also be sure to define 
what the process is for you of creating those results and what the process is of creating yourself intentionally yeah. and experiencing yourself. That's the podcast. Experiencing yourself. I love that. Yes. Everyone, please go over and listen and you all know how much I appreciate your time and know how valuable it is. Thank you so much for choosing to spend it with me and my guests. And until next time, everyone, I will see you all out in cyberspace. Bye-bye. Hello, you sentient ball of stardust. My name is Casey Davis. I'm a therapist and I'm an author of the book, How to Keep House While Drowning, where I talk about ways to make it a little bit easier to take care of yourself when you're overwhelmed, stressed, have mental health issues, physical health issues, or maybe you're just in a hard season of life. Maybe you're looking for a place that you can come and listen to some practical advice. This is a podcast for all of the self-help rejects. We're going to talk about skills for survival and self-kindness. And I'm going to leave the pop psychology at the door. I promise not to tell you to meditate or to journal. We're just going to give you some really insightful conversations with hopefully some practical advice. So I don't believe you need to pick yourself up by the bootstraps. I don't want you to just try harder. And I don't believe that laziness exists. So join me over on Struggle Care, where we can find compassionate solutions that help us function a little bit better. <laughs>